While you uh, turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 70, uh, let me just say a few words. There, there are phrases that none of us uh, ever want to hear, right? Uh, things like uh, root canal, uh, kidney stone, uh, burst pipe, or uh, tax audit, right? Those are all kind of phrases that if you can go the rest of your life without hearing any of those phrases, uh, you would probably be relatively happy. Am I right? Anybody go through any of those things? You hear those words? None of that is really great news. Uh, about 18 months ago, uh, I got a, uh, a tax audit letter in the mail from the state of Pennsylvania. They didn't believe that I was a pastor, and so uh, I had to prove to them that I was a pastor and then um, go through all my tax papers and show them all the tax years that were in question and all those things. And uh, what I found out was that over the last 18 months, for every year that I've lived in Pennsylvania, I've had to repeat the process, uh, which is nine times to get all my tax paperwork together uh, and to put all those things together to demonstrate to the state that, uh, that I am, in fact, a clergy. Uh, but the funny thing was that one, you know, one letter and one bunch of evidence that I sent in to take care of the whole nine years wasn't sufficient. They had opened a case for each year, and they seemed to come three months in a, uh, every three months. So every three months uh, for nine years, so I would get a different letter with a different statement for a different year requiring paperwork, and each time I would send them uh, the same bundle that proved for all the years that I was a clergyman with my certificate of ordination and letters and notes from my previous church and all these other things. And it seemed like every single, if it, if it could be any messier, I don't understand how it could have been any messier. I would send it, they would receive it, they would clear the slate for that year, and then they would send a letter, we didn't get this year, and so I would send it and they would clear it, and then they would send another letter, we, we messed up on this year and this year, and so every few months, for 18 months now, I've been wrestling with terrible tax audits, right? Just nothing, people like people crawling through your finances and you having to find documents and find things like that. Finally, last week, a lady calls and she says, uh, I've been going through your nine years of tax statements and it seems like you've provided all the documents that we need to clear the way for all of your tax problems to go away. At this point, I'm just numb, right? She couldn't. Have, she could have said, "We're going to open every case," and I just would have been. I expected it, you know. But she said, "I'm prepared to completely dissolve the, all these cases, and for you just to be free of any tax burdens any longer." And I just thought, "Oh, thank you, Lord. You delivered me out of this, you know, terrible." Burden that has just been nipping at my heels uh, every you know couple of months for the last eighteen months, and so we read this passage about God being our deliverer, and it makes sense on paper, right? To hear God is a deliverer, and my situation wasn't that terrible, right? Tax audits—I mean, there are greater problems in the world, but for her to utter the words, God has put it on my heart to deliver you from this tax burden, made these words all the more sweet. To know God is a deliverer on paper is one thing. In theory, to know God is a deliverer. 
but for God to literally be a deliverer to you in your situation is a whole different situation. So let's read it together. As though you were in desperate circumstances. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha! Aha! May all who seek You rejoice and be glad in You. May those who love Your salvation say evermore, God is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to Me, O God. You are My help and My deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. What does it mean for God to be your deliverer? Well, it absolutely, first of all, has to mean that you need deliverance from something. You absolutely have to need deliverance from something. And, and if, if these words don't resonate with you, you haven't grasped the weight of your own sinfulness, first of all. And if you haven't grasped the weight of your own sinfulness, you never know um, just what a great rescuer and deliverer that Jesus Christ is. We sing of Jesus' great deliverance and His mercy and His grace and His substitutionary death on the wonderful cross. Listen, we sing with a little bit of passion because at one point you may have realized how great a sinner you are and just how much you needed Jesus Christ. If those words can flow from your mouth in a casual, sort of hard-hearted way, um, then you may have forgotten just the hole that you were in when Jesus Christ delivered you. And lest we forget, um, there can be years since your salvation. Maybe it was in a, a childhood or maybe in your teen years and, and you've lived many years since then and you, this isn't fresh for you today. Oftentimes God allows you to be placed into circumstances where you need a deliverer. So you'll never understand God as a deliverer until you understand the condition that you're in. And all of us who have given our life to Jesus have some sense of the weight of sin on us. And that weight of sin is so great, the punishment looming so far ahead and so terrible that at some point we needed a deliverer and you cried out to Jesus and He delivered you from the stain of sin in your life. But there are other ways in which God can deliver us. And so David is written this wonderful psalm, this desperate psalm, to describe his experience with God the Deliverer. Three years ago, maybe four, a friend of mine from Arkansas uh, lost her son in rising storm waters. He and a friend were walking through a neighborhood and after several days or weeks of torrential downpours, an overflow creek uh, with running water through a storm drain just carried her son into the storm drain for a day of searching. They found him. 
the last three or four years of following uh, Rodney and Jamie have been a difficult experience. But the boldness of Jamie and Rodney as they declare the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God in the midst of a nightmare situation for any parent has been incredibly powerful. This past week, I I was just following uh, and saw on her wall a a video of her with her phone this way, and behind her I could see a mausoleum. Behind her I could see... uh, you know, where she was, and I could see that she had been crying, and I saw the video was seven minutes, and I just thought, nope, not going to watch that. <laughs> Don't want anything to do with that right now. Scrolled on and moved on. A day or two later, I saw it again, saw it again, and thought, at some point, I can't ignore what this woman has to say. And so as I began to watch what she had to say, uh, she, it was the anniversary of Drake's passing, and she was in front of this mausoleum, and she, was, she goes out there, and she just gave us an intimate glimpse into a moment in her regular life. And as she poured out her pain and her struggle and her difficulty, she came to a point four and a half minutes into the video where she declared the grace and the strength of God. And she said, when I come out here, I listen to this song, and and if no one's around, I I sing, it is well with my soul. And she says, well, I want to stop and sing that for you now. And just with tears flowing and snot running and coughing and choking back tears, she sang, it is well with my soul in front of her 11-year-old son's mausoleum. And at the end, she declared, God is my deliverer and the sovereign strength of my life. You don't know God as deliverer until you feel the weight of your sin. And even that's not always fresh for us. We don't always feel the freshness of our sin. And so God often puts us in a situation where we need to know Him as the deliverer. The deliverer. Our sins should be enough. Amen? It should be enough that we are wretched sinners and the fact that you woke up this morning not in hell should be enough for you to come here and to sing a song of worship that Jesus rescued you. But because we're human and because we're numb to our own sinfulness and we're numb to God's holiness, this is just sort of nothing to us. We can hear these concepts and just move forward as if it's nothing. The concept of that should be enough to remind us that God is a good deliverer. Not just from life. If we were for the rest of our lives just to walk in wretched, horrible conditions, the very fact that you have salvation from your sin from a holy God should be enough to worship Him as the deliverer. But it's not. It's not, right? We lose sight of that freshness of sin. So God often sovereignly ushers us into consequences and circumstances and difficulties and trials and all kinds of things to shape Christ in us and to help us to know Him in different ways. We've explored all the different ways that David and other psalm writers have come to know God through these psalms. And we'll get to that in a little while. 
But today, David wants us to know that God is a deliverer. And I want you to know that God is a deliverer. So let's look at the Psalm of David. And I first want you to see um, the fervent desperation in which David cries out in prayer. He cries out fervently and specifically in prayer. Listen to the urgency and the desperation of David in this psalm. He says, Make haste, O God, to deliver me! Exclamation mark. O Lord, make haste to help me! Exclamation mark. I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God! Exclamation mark. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. There are nine exclamation marks in this five-verse psalm. Nine. Eight commas, two semicolons, zero periods, zero question marks, nine exclamation marks. Have you ever written a first draft email to someone that you were struggling with, right? Have you ever had a someone, maybe uh, you had a, an issue with somebody? How many exclamation marks did you use in that like first draft? Maybe half or more of those don't survive like the first edit. Is this just me? But by the time you fire off the final draft, it's like this calm and collected um, email that's just, my dearest so-and-so, I hope this letter finds you well and blessed, etc., etc. After your willingness to confront me, etc., etc., something didn't quite sit right, and I want to make sure I understand, right? This is kind of how the last edit sounds, right? Is this just me? But that first one is like raging this and snarky questions and it's all full of sarcasm and oh, so maybe you knew more and all this kind of... It's probably not, that's not me that I'm describing. I know that that's somebody else that probably does that. But, but this psalm is like that. It is a scream. It's a cry. Listen, if this were set to music... This would be raging guitars. This would be loud. This would be David at the top of his lungs screaming. Listen, write a note today and put nine exclamation marks in it. This is that kind of a psalm. It's a scream. It's a cry. David cried out fervently. And he cried out specifically. Verses 2 and three and uh, two and three describe the specifics that he's dealing with. It's a literal enemy. He literally has someone who is chasing him. It could have been the Philistines, right? David, um, I read this week in my quiet times in Samuel 17, uh, David and Goliath and his struggles with the Philistines. David has, uh, there was a song about David. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David was a warrior, and so it could have been the Philistines that he's talking about. Uh, It could have been Saul seeking his life. Just yesterday, my my quiet time was in uh, 1 Samuel again, and it was that that part where Saul had an evil spirit come over him, and he had a spear while David was playing the guitar in the corner. And you could see the the wheels of Saul's mind turning. He said, I'm just going to grab that spear and pin David to the wall. And he hurled a spear and it stuck in the wall. And the Bible says that David fled. You know from David's story that he was in the wilderness hiding from Saul for years. Could have been the Philistines. Could have been Saul. Could have been years later when Absalom, his son, was seeking the kingdom and caused David to flee and to run for his life. David was no stranger to enemies. That's his specific 
issue that he's dealing with in Psalm 70. What does this look like for you? What is oppression, captivity, those who are seeking you, pursuers, what does your oppression look like? For David, it was a literal enemy trying to literally kill his life. For you, it could be other things. It could be health issues. It could be financial issues. It could be relationship issues. Uh, You could be held captive by emotional things, irrational fears, prejudices, stereotypes. You could be held captive by addictions, whether it's uh, gambling or drugs or alcohol or sinful experiences or destructive adult material. You could be held captive by the worries and the stresses and the fears and the anxieties and just the general what if happens. It could cause you sort of to run and hide. You could be held captive by your passion for material things, for greed, for comforts, for experiences. What does your prison look like? For David, it was a literal enemy. It doesn't have to look like that for you. For you, it could be a number of things. And you, you probably know the walls of your prison intimately. Right? You've felt the walls. You know every contour. You know every crack. You know every part of the prison that God may have ushered you into. And listen, if this is not you today, if you're thinking, I, I'm, I'm completely free. I mean, listen, this is what your friends, neighbors, and relatives are going through. The Bible promises that sin has a price and the the wages of sin is death and captivity and oppression. That's why when Jesus came, He said, He has called me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, release for the captives, freedom for the prisoners. And so there is a payment for sin and it's your soul. And so if this isn't you today, if you're delivered and everything is going relatively well, just I want you to think about your neighbor Think about your coworker. Think about someone down the street. They are trapped in a prison, not only of sin, but of their own circumstances and conditions. What does your prison look like? You see, things that can start out seeming fun end up being imprisoning, oppressive, crushing. And our enemy is cunning. Your first 10 or 20 experiences of something might be amazing. Pure joy, bliss, and wonderful. But after you're hooked, then you become enslaved to the thing that you thought would bring you life. Maybe it's fueling a sense of anger towards someone. And those first five or ten expressions of anger and frustration feel really kind of freeing, right? But then after ten or twenty times of these expressions, you begin to see that that anger and bitterness and rage and all those things that you might struggle with are a prison to you. David found that God was a literal deliverer from his prison. So what's your prison look like? The second thing that we can see in David's situation here, not only did he cry out specifically, not only did he cry out fervently, the second thing he did was he trusted in the timing of the one who delivered him. Listen to the the references to timing in this short psalm. Verse 1, two times, make haste. That means haul, right? That means get here now. Like, come right away. Verse 5, hasten to me. Don't delay. Did you know that after praying fervently and specifically that there is a difficult time where God calls you to trust in the timing of the One who delivers? 
Now for us, we want it now. We want it quickly. It's uncomfortable. It hurts. I don't want to be here. I want out. This is our cry from David's lips. Make haste. Get it on. Let's go. Let's put an end to this thing. But on the flip side, God is never late. A.W. Tozer said it best when he said, God never hurries. There are no deadlines against which He must work. And only to know this is to quiet our spirits and to relax our nerves. I don't know what A.W. Tozer is talking about. I don't feel relaxed, right? I understand what he's meaning that, that, that there are no deadlines and to know this does something, but quieting our spirits and relaxing our nerves is a harder battle to fight. Does God's timing bothers you? bother you? It bothers me. I'm always interested in now and quicker and hurry and let's go. John Piper reminds us that God is always doing 10,000 things all around you and you may only be aware of three of them. Does that sound about right? That God is aligning things. That God is moving in other people and other circumstances and other things. And, and it's not about us and our timetable. And so often when God, we want God to be a deliverer, we want it to happen in our time frame. And that's okay. David understands that. We understand that. God understands that. But there has to be a trust and a waiting in the timing of the one who delivers. Last thing that we can see here, not only did David pray fervently and specifically, not only did he trust in the timing of the God who delivers him, but the last thing is he wants us to rest in the character of the one who is able to deliver. To trust in the character of the one who delivers. You see, you may be pinched in your circumstances and you may be tempted to doubt who it is that's delivering you. You may even say, his arm is too short to save me. Well, I guess he just doesn't care. He's not able to deliver me. Well, maybe he is busy somewhere else and I'm just not important enough for him to deliver me. In all those times when all those doubts and when all those struggles creep in, there comes a moment when you have to consider the character of the one in whom you're doubting. Job's wife. Just curse God and die. The rest of her sentence might have been like me. right? Like the rest of us. Just... Put Him behind you. When struggles come and when difficulties come and when all you face are struggles and difficulties and hard situations, the character of the One who delivers you is paramount. David knows from experience who he's talking to. Why would he write about rejoicing and gladness in verse 4? May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation evermore say, God is great. Why would he say those things? Why would he say those things if he didn't already know that rejoicing and gladness come to those who seek God? If he didn't know that firsthand, why would he say that? Why would he describe love for God's salvation if he had not fallen in love with the God who saves? Why would he repeatedly describe God as great if he hadn't experienced the greatness of God? 
How could he label here God as his help and his deliverer if God hadn't repeatedly revealed himself to David as his help and his deliverer? Listen, look backward in your own life and you'll see that God is the provider, that God is the sovereign ruler over all things, that God is the gracious God who gives you not the the penalties that we deserve, but the grace that you don't deserve. You'll see that God has been forever deeply interested and committed to forming Christ in you. However willing, however unfaithful, however much you buck against the process, He is absolutely committed to you. Philippians 1 reminds us that He who began a good work in you will what? Leave you in the middle of nowhere? No, He will finish it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That means that upon your death, the work will be completed. Listen, the absolute greatest thing that can happen to a Christian is his or her death. The absolute greatest thing that can happen to a Christian. The number one uh, best thing that can happen to you of all time in your entire life is your death. How can I say such a ridiculous thing? From our point of view, that doesn't sound true at all. But what happens upon death for the believer? They are all of a sudden perfected. They are all of a sudden experiencing the final aspect of salvation. That is the glorification. The the barriers are gone. They are in the presence of God forevermore. No more pain. No more crying. No more tears. They are in a place where they are made whole 100% in the presence of their Creator. Listen, if you could have your loved one back, they, wouldn't, they, would, be, they would not want that. They are absolutely the greatest thing that can happen to a believer is the day of their death, the moment of their passing. And while we grieve and while we struggle and while that's hard for us still living, there will be a day when we will be with our Lord and Savior and know Him as the completer and the deliverer. You must rest in that God's character that says nothing will snatch you out of my hand. I'm faithful to you. I'm faithful to the process. I've said this over and over again. It's not my words. It's somebody else's. But it's true that if you could lose your salvation, you absolutely would. If there was something you could do to blow it, you've already blown it, right? You probably even today broke one of the Ten Commandments, which if we serve a holy God and you break one law one time, then His holy, just, righteous character must punish that sin. And so for you, believer, you should know that He is the deliverer of all your sins. And not only has He delivered you from your past sins, but from your present sins and from your future sins. And that One who watches over your soul completely will usher you onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And it's His character that you may doubt in the pinch of circumstances, but it's His character that you have to go back and say, I don't understand, right? I don't understand this. I was describing this to somebody this week, and they said, how you doing? I said, well, I I walk in between three campgrounds, right? There's a campground over here, and it's filled with facts. And those facts point to a reality, right? Uh, Failure, struggle, difficulty, problems, issues, those are all facts. 
And so from that campground, I walk with my head down over to this campground, which is all feelings. Anger, rage, self-loathing, blame, frustration, difficulty, irritation, all these sort of things. And I hang out over there for a while, and, and there's a course of actions that I can take from the campground of feelings. And a course of action I can take from these campground of facts, right? Those two camps I can walk back and forth between them. But there's a third camp. There's a third campground out there. It's the campground of God's promises and the campground of God's character. And it's the campground of God's faithfulness and His truth and His Word. And if I operate over here too much and it doesn't propel me to His presence, or if I operate over here too much and it doesn't propel me to His presence, then there's something wrong with my walk with Christ. But because of the facts and because of the feelings, I am thrust to a different campground. And if you're operating in any other way, if you're focusing too much over here and you're focusing too much over here, then you know the back doors to both of those campgrounds. You can take your feelings of anger and despair and frustration and you can blow it. You can go to an establishment and blow it. You can go to a website and blow it. You can go to a person and blow it. You can go to a thing and you can blow it. You can take your feelings and your reality and you can ruin everything. Or you can use those things to propel you into the presence of God where He wants you to know one thing today about Him. He is a deliverer. He is a deliverer. The One who delivers. And last week we looked at Him as a refuge. And as a tower. And as the stable One. And the week before we looked at Him as the One who builds the house and who watches the wall. The One who is your security. And the week before that we looked at Him as the One who is able to be our shepherd and our guide and the One who revives us and the One who restores us. Listen, the Psalms are replete with ways in which people have come to know God and they place a title on that. How have you come to know Him in your life? Is He just the one that is the oppressor? Do you feel like your soul is oppressed? Listen, that's, that's the wrong character. That's not the right one you're thinking of. There is grace and there is mercy and there is redemption and there is deliverance in Christ Jesus. If your life is one big struggle, the ultimate deliverance is given by the ultimate deliverer and that is Jesus Christ rescuing you from your sin. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And if the rest of our lives are just one big struggle, we have to operate not in these two campgrounds of reality and feelings, but in this campground of what the promise will be and the character of the one who operates in that place. How can you know God is your deliverer? Look what David did. He cried out fervently and specifically. He waited for God's timing and he trusted in God's character. I'll just leave you with these questions. What has God delivered you from in the past? Is there a track record of something he's done for you in the past? A health issue, a relationship issue, a sin issue, a, an addiction issue. A, a, what is it? A financial issue. Has he provided for you in some way in which you didn't see the way he's coming? Listen, God is a deliverer who knows how to deliver. And all you have to do to know Him is to look back at how He's operated with you in the past. 
What has He delivered you from in the past? What do you need to trust God to deliver you from now in the present? What do you need to trust Him with now in the present? And lastly, I'll ask this. Do you know someone who needs deliverance? If it's not you, if you're okay, don't selfishly hoard the answer. Who near you needs to know God as the deliverer? You should this week write out a paragraph or two of how God has delivered you and send it to them. You can just write out a paragraph in a card and say, I was thinking about you this week, and as I was praying for you, I wanted to encourage you and let you know how God delivered me from something in the past. I don't know how you'll receive that, but I just felt compelled to share that with you this week. Maybe it's grief, maybe it's financial, maybe it's a health issue, maybe it's a... Whatever your issue is that God delivered you from, whoever God puts on your mind as you pray for them, write out a card and deliver. Show them that God is a deliverer. Stop by with a gift. Give them a note. Show them that God is a faithful deliverer. Make an effort. Go out of your way. Stop and say a prayer with them. Listen, even if they don't believe, you can believe for them based on your experience with a God who delivers. They don't have to fall on their knees reading your note, right? It just may be the thing that two years from now, they look back on and say, that was a moment where God was trying to show me part of who He is. God is the deliverer. The deliverer of our souls. The deliverer of us ultimately. Do you know Him as a deliverer? Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your promise of deliverance. Ultimately, You promise to deliver us. In Romans 11, it says, In this way, it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish all ungodliness. In 1 Thessalonians 1, you promise us, as we wait for your Son to come back from heaven, whom you raised from the dead, it says that Jesus is the Deliverer, the One who delivers us from the wrath to come. You've already described yourself as a Deliverer. And so I pray that today we would know You as a Deliverer, the One who delivers us. So we pray that You would take Your Word and that You would plant it deep within us, that our experience will flesh it out, and that a year from now we will have a testimony of how You delivered us. In Jesus' name, Amen.